millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone and thanks again for downloading the second episode to the Seven Minutes to Midnight series, which is obviously a sub-series to The Unconventional Soldier. The Cold War, as we talked about in episode one, is an enormous subject. It's complex with many interdependent elements. To help guide us through some of the early events is Ian Sanders, who hosts a usually successful Cold War Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining us and before we chat through some of these events, what drew you to the Cold War subject? Um, well, thank you for the intro and thank you for the uh, the honour of appearing on your podcast. But, I mean, I was born in the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So my formative years were through the, the Cold War. And I, as a civilian, um, you know, I distinctly remember the fear that there was at the time of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. I remember the uh, peace demonstrations with CND and and others. And during that period, it seemed like the Soviet Union was going to be there forever. Th- this wasn't going to change anytime soon. And then, you know, things did start to change. And I certainly remember when the Berlin Wall opened, I thought to myself, I'm really living through history that mm. will be remembered in hundreds of of years time and you know sort of through that and through interviewing my father who served in world war Two in the uh, northwestern europe campaign of 44 to 45 um i thought you know people aren't capturing people's accounts of this period um there's a lot of focus on world war Two, justifiably but less focus on the Cold War. And that was really the the genesis of Cold War conversations, was to capture as many oral histories of the Cold War as I could across military, civilian, diplomatic, a whole range of different voices. 
and to uh, be able to share those with people and preserve those for the future. And I'm delighted that I've got universities and schools using the content that I produce in their teaching of the Cold War. And obviously, with recent events in Ukraine, um, there's a lot of echoes there from that Cold War period. It's interesting you say that about the, uh, the status quo as it was. So when we were all kids and growing up, that status quo was the norm. And like you say, no one could ever foresee it ever changing. There was there was also a, a degree of certainty around the yeah, world. Yeah. Whereas today, what with asymmetric warfare and all the other things that, that are going on, really the only major enemy was the Soviet Union. There were, um, you know, terrorist actions going on, particularly with uh, the IRA, and there were terrorist actions in the Middle East. And obviously, you know, there were some IRA attacks on uh, British forces in, in Germany um, as well. But I, I just feel that in that period, and it could be me looking back on it through slightly rose-tinted spectacles, that the world just seemed much more clearer as to where the dangers were or where the threats were. Well, there was a, well, there was a world order. There isn't a world order yeah. now. It's, 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 a, yeah. it's a fully disrupted world, isn't it? Well, we had a focus, didn't we, I suppose? Defence had a focus, the government had a focus, NATO had a focus. Uh, the superpowers were obviously the uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. And then we had all the emerging threats. I mean, obviously, uh, one of the things I want to talk about in a later episode is the Chinese communist threat, uh, which was different to the... USSR. I mean, when, when do you talk about China? I mean, I learn something new in every interview, and I've interviewed a couple of Australian uh, military personnel, and I asked them about China because I thought that would be the natural worry for them, is communist China, and it wasn't. It was still the Soviet Union. Hmm. China was considered not sufficiently a threat to Australia, um, and their training was specifically towards a sort of a Soviet threat, obviously mainly seaborne, and a threat to their, you know, their seaborne trade routes from the Soviet Union. Um, but they did have quite a significant army. They had, uh, they didn't buy Chieftain, can't think why, and ended up with uh, Lafford. <laughs> yeah, there was some that the engine wouldn't break down every five minutes. I think we talked about it in episode one. But we're going to briefly look at some of these early historical events um, on the Cold War, which I believe helped shape the stance of the superpowers and and, and these three are going to be the Berlin airlift which as I've read is, is an absolutely enormous logistical task which I didn't realise how big it was and I always question myself could we still do it today I don't know um, we're looking at the Berlin War as the Berlin War went up and Berlin and East and West Germany were finally divided with a physical barrier and then a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis where America's always been quite lucky in that the, the world wars were always in Europe and not on the doorstep of America. But I think with the Soviet Union trying to move weapon systems closer, perhaps the Americans started to feel like how we felt in Europe, the war could be on our doorstep. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. So at the end of the Second World War then, the United States, the British and Soviet military forces divided and occupied Germany. 
and Berlin was also divided into occupation zones inside Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany. So the United States, the United Kingdom and France controlled western portions of the city, while Soviet troops controlled the eastern sector. And as the wartime alliance between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union ended, and friendly relations quickly turned sour, this raised the threat to whether the western occupation zones in Berlin would remain under Western Allied control or whether the city would be absorbed into Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany. And this really led to the first crisis of the Cold War. The crisis known as the Berlin Airlift started on June 24th, 1948, when the Soviet forces blockaded rail, road and water access to the Allied-controlled areas of Berlin. The United States and United Kingdom responded by airlifting food and fuel to Berlin from Allied air bases in Western Germany. The crisis ended on May the 12th, 1949, when the Soviet forces lifted the blockade and access to Western Berlin. So Ian, how did such an event arise between Second World War, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, France, uh, US, we're all on the same side with the same goal? How did we so quickly break down? Well, you know, we we all had this agreement to have these separate occupation zones. And I think it, it's worth mentioning that Austria was also at this point divided up into occupation zones. So British, French, UK and Soviet occupation zones. And Vienna was divided up into occupation zones as well, although it was slightly different to Berlin in so much it had a neutral zone in the middle of it, uh, which Berlin didn't. But Stalin, who was the Soviet leader at the time, um, wanted Germany and Austria to be neutral countries, so to sort of be this void between East and West. Now, Austria did become neutral. It signed an agreement with the Soviets in 1955 and became a separate state. Soviet troops uh, were withdrawn there. But in Germany, the Allies weren't going to allow that to happen. And more and more, there were competing occupation policies and tensions between the West and the Soviet Union. Berlin had been blown up to rubble. So had Germany. And there was a, you know, a black market throughout the country. So in January 47, the US and the UK uh, unified their two zones into what was then called the buy zone. Now, this caused tensions to escalate. There was a breakdown at a conference in Moscow of foreign ministers. And in June, George Marshall, who was the US Secretary of State, announced the European Recovery Programme, which a lot of people will be familiar as the Marshall Plan to support economic recovery in Western Europe. What's less known is it was also offered to Eastern European countries, but obviously they were under pressure from the Soviets not to accept any Western aid. But furthermore, in 1948, the US, UK and France then secretly began to plan the creation of a new German state made up of the Western Allied Occupation Zone, so what we would know as West Germany. And in addition to that, the Allies were bringing in a new currency called the Deutschmark. And when the Soviets discovered this was going on, in Berlin, they, they withdrew from the Allied Control Council. And as a counter to that, they issued their own currency in East in their zone called the Ostmark, which then became the East German currency once East Germany was set up. Why were the Allies so keen to rebuild West Germany? 
when the Soviet Union obviously wanted it to be a a neutral country, but obviously they probably didn't want them to be a powerhouse as they are now. Why did the West want West Germany to be a success again? Um, mainly because they were having to funnel huge amounts of money to support the population. I mean, the, the, the country was completely ravaged, so the quicker they could get the economy back on its feet, get people working, it was going to be less of a cost to the West. But also, strategically, it was important to have forces as far forward as possible if it all turned nasty. <laughs> so, you know, for, for them having forces in West Germany and also rearming the West Germans as well. And that was another area which the Soviets weren't happy about because when West Germany was set up, the West German army did consist of quite a number of Wehrmacht officers and men who had served on the Eastern Front and who had direct experience of fighting the Russians. I think as well, when you look at it, there is probably an aspect of they look back at the First World War and the sort of the punishments were dished out to Germany at the end of the war, which was one of the reasons of the rise of the Nazis and that sort of uh, bad feeling towards the rest of Europe that they had been uh, badly, badly treated after the war. So I think that maybe played a, a part as well. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I think you're right. It was to try and get the country into a state where it could function effectively and remain democratic as well. So the basic tenets of the West German constitution were put together by the British, Americans and the French and still remain there to this day, large areas of that. I think you can see a difference in the Soviet and Western Allies approach, whereas Keith mentioned that the Soviets were stripping out German factories, means of production being taken all the way back to Germany. And we had Volkswagen, as we mentioned in the first podcast of this series we did, Kev, was set up by a British major, I think it was. I don't know if you've covered that in any of your episodes, Ian. It was set up by a British Royal Engineers major to, and some plans and some old plant that he found. No, I haven't covered it in uh, any detail. It's an argument as to when the Cold War starts. Is it Berlin Airlift or is it in 1945? My view, it's probably at the end of World War II. Um, and uh, there's, yeah... It, it's it's a fascinating story, that, with Volkswagen. Yeah. The Soviets blocked all the major road rail canal links into West Berlin. They were basically starving out the Western Berliners. What what options were available for the, the Allies? Well, the Allies did look at all of the options. One was obviously to try and send uh, troops into Berlin through the land corridor, which had been set up under agreement that there were road, road and rail links, but obviously the, the Soviets had cut that. Um, but what was also part of the agreement was three air corridors into Berlin, which were allowed to be used by the Allies to supply Berlin. So for the Soviets to block those, it was very difficult. Uh, so the Allies decided they needed to supply the city through the air. And I think there was a British wing commander who was the lead on how this logistical nightmare was handled. And he's one of the unsung heroes. I did cover him in one of the um, in one of my uh, episodes. Sadly, I can't remember his name at the moment. So the Allies started to uh, supply 
the city through the the air. The Soviets did try and obstruct them. They did have Soviet fighters flying in and out of the corridor, and there were several near misses, I think at least one mid-air collision between a Soviet fighter and an Allied aircraft, and there were accidents with, with the Allies as well because there was a huge number of aircraft flying in and, and, and flying out. But... You know, they did manage to supply the city. It wasn't really thought possible, and there were shortages in the city. But ever since the airlift, they made sure that city had a lot of extra stockpiles in terms of food and and fuel, just in case the Soviets turned the screws again. The scale of the airlift was enormous, with one plane landed every 45 seconds into Berlin from the Allies. The US Air Force delivered over 1 million 783,573 tonnes, and the RAF, 541,937 tonnes. So you imagine old aircraft to deliver that amount of cargo, and I believe the biggest amount of cargo was coal. Yeah, and it was also one of the most problematic because of the coal dust. That and salt, they had to move salt using seaplanes because they had anti-corrosion built yeah. into them what was it interesting was in addition um canada australia new zealand south africa um assisted the RAF during the air campaign but i also found out that the french conducted their uh, flights as well but only provided supplies for the military garrison very french um and apparently american transport airplanes flew over 92 million miles in total um 17 American and 8 British aircraft crashed. Uh, so over 40 UK and 31 personnel who were killed due to various accidents. I mean, I, we could, could we do that today? I suppose we could. But the logistics side and thinking pre-computer times when you've got somebody with a chalkboard, pen and paper and making this work and the accuracy of getting planes on the ground, unloaded and back out through corridors with very unsophisticated equipment, day and night, is a, a tremendous uh, achievement. Yeah, and and these guys that were flying in had only three years earlier been flying over Berlin, dropping a very deadly cargo as yeah. well. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, Ian. That Allied assistance to the Berliners, was that a turning point in relations and that the Berliners realised the Western Allies were on their side now and determined to look after the best interests or had relations already turned a corner by that point anyway? Um, I think it, it did change opinions of some of their former foes. And, you know, because once the Allies occupied Germany, certainly the British had quite a tough anti-fraternisation policy with the civilians. And that did continue for, for some time. And I think the Berlin airlift really just was you know, the final nail in, in those sort of restrictions and in treating the what became the West Germans and the West Berliners as true allies of the Allies. Was there ever a moment where it was going to turn hot and the West were thinking, right, we're going to have to charge through, create a corridor and relieve Berlin? Or was that just never an option? I mean, as you know, the military draw up plans for every eventuality. Um, and I think that the reality w- would have been is that, 
You know, they, they wouldn't have made it to Berlin. They'd already demobilized a lot of the forces that had been there in at the end of World War Two, whereas the Soviets were still pretty much tooled up and armed to the teeth, almost as though World War Two had had just finished. So to attempt a forcing of a land corridor, I think would have potentially been the trigger for World War Three. And the the airlift was obviously such a significant event. And it did show uh, the Allies' resolve to deal with this this threat. It must have made the Soviet Union think about, well, actually, although we think they're, the, the Allies are war-weary and they just want to go home, rebuild their own countries and economy and all the rest of it, they must have realised there was still some fight left in the Allies because, obviously, we, we wouldn't have pushed it so hard to save Berlin if we didn't feel that... Symbolically, it was important to the centre of Europe and uh, the end of the Second World War campaign and the success of the Second World War campaign. But we did have a resolve to face up to the Soviet Union. Absolutely. I mean, that, that determination to keep that foothold sort of 100 miles inside East Germany, that island of, of democracy there, showed Stalin that we weren't going to give it up without a fight. It was ours, and we were going to try and keep it. We're going to move swiftly on to the Berlin Wall. And for me, the Berlin Wall was one of the most symbolic uh, features that symbolised for me the Cold War. And like most people who, who, who grew up during the Cold War, it was in films, it was in books. You know, the, the Spire came in from the Cold, one of my favourite books and favourite films. When the war came down, you were witnessing history. Um, but how did we get to a Berlin Wall? Because during the airlift, Berlin was still open. That That's correct. I think it's it's worth noting that there's two borders here. There's the border around West Berlin, which is 100 miles or so in the middle of East Germany. And then there's the border between East Germany and West Germany, which was most commonly known as the Inner German border. So by the early 1950s, the Soviets and the East Germans were looking at controlling national movement. And this was common with a lot of the Eastern Bloc states because people were fleeing to more democratic countries. Um, And up until about 1952, the border between East Germany and West Germany was relatively porous. You could cross quite easily for visits to West Berlin residents. Stalin's foreign minister proposed that the East Germans should introduce a system of passes for visits of West Berlin residents to the territory of East Berlin, so as to stop the free movement of Western agents into the East. They also advised the East Germans to build up their border defences so that demarcation line between East and West Germany, the access to that was restricted. So consequently, the inner German border was closed and a barbed wire fence erected. And in later stages, there were mines, uh, anti-personnel mines there as well. But the border between the Western and Eastern sectors of Berlin remained open. So people could easily travel between East and West. And in fact, a lot of East Berliners actually worked in the West 
and travelled back each evening to live in the East. Berlin, as a result, became a magnet for East Germans desperate to escape life in the East, but also a flashpoint for tension between the two superpowers because it was still a relatively open border. So Berlin is now the main route for East Germans if they want to leave for the West. By 1961, about three and a half million East Germans had left. So that's approximately 20% of the entire East German population. And they were young, well-educated. So there was a big brain drain going on here. And a significant 50% increase in the number of East German intelligentsia amongst the refugees to the West. So the East Germans got the green light from the Soviet Union to erect what later became known as the Berlin Wall. So the East Germans chose a Sunday morning to do this. So 13th of August 1961, police and units of the East German army and the workers' militia began to close the border. And they were very specific to not have any Soviet troops involved in this, although Soviet troops were on standby in other areas of um, East Berlin, should it start to turn ugly. Did the Allies have no indication this was going to happen? Well, they didn't really. Um, the, the East Germans had kept this really under wraps. The guy who actually ran the operation was somebody who became rather more familiar later, Eric Honecker. He wow. was the planner and the logistics guy, and the uh, the code name for it was Operation Rose. Presumably there was some analogy there with the thorns on the barbed wire, I don't know. So on this Sunday morning, they closed the border. Now, it's not as straightforward as you would might think, is just in terms of erecting bits of barbed wire and starting to build a wall, because there were public transport systems that bisected East and West Berlin. So once the last underground train had gone through, the tunnels were blocked and also the the trams and the S-Bahn, which was the overhead railway um, in Berlin. But it was a big border. This was 27 miles that divided East and West Berlin. And that 13th of August became commonly referred to as Barbed Wire Sunday. The other thing that's important to know is the barrier was built a few yards inside East Berlin on East German territory to make sure that it didn't encroach on West Berlin at any point. So the wall was generally slightly inside East Berlin. And in fact, a lot of tourists to the city in later years didn't realise that when they were actually up against the wall in West Berlin, they were on East German territory. So that this wall was going up with a quite obvious intent of stopping people moving across to the west. Did the population just sit back and take this passively? Were there any demonstrations? There weren't really any demonstrations in the east uh, because of all the uh, police and workers' militia in the area. The West Germans, mainly the youth, were lobbing stones and bricks at the uh, East German police And there were a lot of protests in the east. And in fact, the Allied authorities were worried that there would be cross-border shooting and stuff like that. So they had the and the and the West the West Berlin police had the unenviable task of sort of suppressing these demonstrations to try and reduce tensions. Um, In some ways, from the Allies point of view, the building of the wall did sort a problem 
for them in terms of the possibility of accidental incursions and and uh, incidents was reduced by having a solid definable barrier that stopped the movement between east and west so whilst the allies protested to the soviets about this contravention of the agreement on berlin with regard to free access across all zones it was in some ways of benefit to the allies because it created more certainty and reduced instability in the city did did the allies still have business to conduct in the east because i imagine when the four occupational zones were without like a border they each had to travel into each other's areas for various because i remember i think it was spandau prison and the allies and i'm not sure if the soviets did yeah the soviets uh, guarded it yeah, they did yeah they did I mean, each occupying power had the authority to travel into the other occupying powers' zones. So, for example, the Allies used to make a point of having what they called flag tours of East Berlin. So they would go into East Berlin in an Allied vehicle and drive around the city, effectively showing the flag. These sort of morphed into semi-intelligence operations because... um, uh, surprisingly, large number of East German and Soviet military installations appear to be on the route of uh, these flag tours and various bits of intelligence were, were picked up there. Now, the Soviets had a war memorial inside the British zone. It's that war memorial that's just by Brandenburg Gate. So they had a right of access to that as well, and they would uh, transfer their guards through every day on a bus and at Spandau Prison, where um, prisoner number seven, Rudolf Hess, was the only prisoner once Dernitz and a couple of other Nazis were released in, I think, the 1950s and the 1960s, the Soviets shared the guard with the British and the Americans. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My dad was a guard there. Was he? the Brits. Yeah, he's stationed in Berlin. Well, early 60s. Well, I remember going up to Berlin on the Berlin train. I forget the name of it now. But uh, you, you got on, and at a certain point, the train stopped, and the Soviets came on. And it was quite quite surreal as a, as a Lance Corporal at the time. You, you're seeing the enemy, as it were, coming through, checking mm. your papers. And you got to Berlin, and exactly as Ian said, I think it was the I think the Germans had a May Day parade as well, uh, if I'm right. But anyway, we, yeah. we went across in a number two dress uniform, and we're walking around the streets, 
looking at all this East German kit that was all trundling past. And you could go into the shops. The shops are quite unreal because you'd look at some of the shops and the windows would appear full. But when you went up to the windows closely, it was all like maybe one or two items. It was stacked to look like there was a variety of goods in the window. Lots of war damage still as well in the East compared to the West. So it was quite a surreal experience for a young soldier to go into enemy territory, as it were, and see firsthand what that was like. So was it left behind in time a little bit, the East, in comparison to yeah, it... Western Berlin and the economy booming and obviously the rebuild as much as they could? I remember I went into a shop and I bought a Praktika SLR camera and a couple of lenses, which everybody was buying back then. And it was, yeah. and it was on my last day and uh, I uh, basically just said to this girl, keep the change, and she's protested quite a bit. And I said, no, no, and I just left it on the counter. And I can't remember how much it was, but the guy I was with who was up in Berlin, I said, she's really worried now. You've left her the equivalent of about four days' wages. She's probably a bit worried about how she's going to explain this. So I didn't realise I put this young woman in an uncomfortable position. Well, that was the height of the Stasi policing who, who yeah. thrived on paranoia. Still got that yeah, camera. I mean, I... Uh, well... <laughs> Practica was the first SLR that I had um, <laughs> as well. It weighed a ton and was built like a tank. They were solid pieces of kit. Um, with regard to Spandau Prison, I've got an interview with one of the uh, with a British serviceman who served there, who later became a beef eater at the Tower of London. So he had two connections with Hess because Hess had been held at the Tower of London when he yeah, first landed yeah. in Britain in World War Two, and then later he's a guard. Uh, or, or earlier, even earlier, he's a he's a guard for him at uh, at Spandau. But really interesting insight into uh, Hess. In fact, I've got two interviews. I've got an interview with a, somebody who was a translator for Hess as well at Spandau. Because he was um, a prisoner, wasn't so, he, at one point? He yeah, was. I mean, that's prisoner. what I was saying. I think Dernitz, there was Dernitz and somebody else um, there. It might have been von Schirach. So I think there were about two or three prisoners in there and they were released in something like the 1960s i think the last one mm. and then hess was there from 1960 to about 1985 until he committed suicide what happened to the prison afterwards it was demolished because they didn't want it to become some sort of shrine yeah, yeah. to hess and they made sure that all the bricks disappeared that there were no souvenirs whatsoever yeah but what is the funny fact that is it's one of these great um facts is that the uh, British built a supermarket on the site uh, for the British forces and in inevitable squaddy humour it was nicknamed Hesco's <laughs> <laughs> The third and final part of our episode tonight is the Cuban Missile Crisis In 1961 the US put nuclear missiles into Italy and Turkey so obviously increasing the, the amount of missiles in Europe and shortening the launch to target time into the Soviet Union. It also trained a paramilitary force of Cuban exiles who, led by the CIA, attempted to invade and overthrow the communist governments of Cuba. And that was called the Bay of Pigs operation. So what brought America and Soviet Union as close as we've probably been to a third world war? Well, Castro, who was the communist leader of Cuba, um, was fearful of a full-scale 
US invasion. So he appealed to the Soviet Union. In fact, he tried to get Cuba to join the Warsaw Pact. Um, but Khrushchev, the Soviet leader at the time, wasn't too keen on that because that would mean they'd automatically have to uh, ally themselves with them if they if they were uh, attacked. But what the Soviets did agree to do was to deploy some Soviet troops on the island to deter a uh, US assault and also to deploy some intermediate range nuclear weapons. Now, from the American point of view, it was as though when when they discovered that these nuclear weapons were on there, I mean, the Soviets were really clever in terms of getting these in. It was only once they were almost activated that the Americans realised there were nuclear weapons on the island of Cuba. Um, now, these weapons could reach most of the continental US and at very short notice. But if you look at it from a Soviet point of view, the missiles that you mentioned earlier, Kevin, that the US had put in in Italy and Turkey were the equivalent. They yes. would have been able yes. to hit the Soviet Union really quickly. The, the US decided that they were going to have to look at a number of options here in order to get these missiles out of Cuba. Military invasion was obviously one option. Airstrikes was looked at. And Kennedy actually yo-yoed between whether to actually attack Cuba um and eventually he decided on going for a blockade because he thought that that was going to be the least tension-raising option. And it turned out he made exactly the right decision there because what the US didn't know at that point is that the Soviets, in addition to strategic nuclear weapons, they'd also deployed tactical nuclear weapons. And if the US had have invaded, tried to invade Cuba... Those tactical nuclear weapons were under independent local command. You've got to remember, this is the 1960s, where telecommunications back to Moscow or anywhere else in the world were not exactly reliable. So imagine a panicked Soviet local commander seeing the Americans pouring out a landing craft on the beaches of Cuba, and he's got a tactical nuclear weapon there. He may well have launched it. That, I mean, that brings World War Three even closer than just the missile systems. Yeah, because at least the tactical or the strategic missile system, you're hoping that has to go up a chain of command somewhere for a number of people to agree. Well, the blockade also created issues in itself because in addition to surface supply ships uh, coming towards Cuba with resupply for these missiles and other armaments, these were being escorted by Soviet submarines. And so the... U.S. Navy ships were instructed to get these submarines to surface. And the way that they were going to do this was to drop um, training depth charges. Now, to somebody in a submarine, a training depth charge doesn't sound hugely different from a proper depth charge, depending on how close it it goes off next to you. Um, And what the U.S. also didn't know is... Some of these submarines were armed with nuclear torpedoes. And one of these submarines, the commander was getting so worked up about these training depth charges going off that he was seriously considering launching a nuclear torpedo at the American fleet. And he was dissuaded by one of his officers. There were three officers who had to make the decision 
and um, one of them, Vasily Arkhipov, um, and he's it's worth googling the story there. Said, look, we don't want to be starting World War Three, and uh, obviously, as we know nuclear war didn't happen but there were a number of sort of close calls where misunderstandings could have sent us over the brink we're extremely lucky actually that nothing really went as wrong as it could have yeah well there's a um there's some friends of mine called the living i think they're called the living history group anyway they they do sort of like a war game around the cuba missile crisis and they take it around to various historical shows and it's based on all the decisions that were were made there, and I have yet to work my way through it without blowing up the world. <laughs> and I pretend to know some of this. <laughs> so, how did we get to that point? How did we get to an agreement during this build-up of tension? And, and obviously, now we know there's a little bit. You know, we've got more background. Mm. How did this de-escalate? Um, the Soviets had a back channel through Robert Kennedy, who was the Attorney General uh, and brother of of JFK, um, and there were sort of feelers put out by the US and the Soviets as to you know if the US withdrew, got the missiles out of Turkey, would the Soviets withdraw the missiles out of Cuba? And at this point, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, realised that he'd really overstepped. He'd bitten off far more than he could chew. He really didn't think there would be this reaction from the Americans. He thought the Americans would just accept it because there were these other missiles in Turkey and Italy right on the, um, you know, the Soviets' doorstep. So they came to this agreement and it, it, it really... That in order for the US to save face, the agreement was that the missiles in Turkey would be removed in like about six months' time. So to try and make it not look directly linked. But those missiles in Turkey were actually scheduled to be removed anyway because they were virtually obsolete um, as far as the US missile systems were concerned. I think the the other thing to remember here is in 1960, the, the Soviets had very few intercontinental ballistic missile weapons. Their main method of delivery was from aircraft over long distance. They had some, but not many. The US had only just started putting uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles on submarines as well. So in some ways, the submarine base system made those missiles in Turkey and Italy obsolete because the US had a far more effective and hidden a, a system that could be hidden anywhere in the world than having fixed missile sites in Europe and that's still the same today the best strategic nuclear deterrent we've got is the submarine elements which will be for us and the rest of the allies it is, but the more I speak to anti-submarine experts who were in the Cold War, the more I hear that they weren't as hidden as we'd like to believe. Oh. There were ways of hearing where they are and, and knowing where yeah, they are. Yeah. And I bet that's got even greater nowadays. It's just shattering myths now, Ian. I know, I'm just thinking... <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> I felt safe there. I felt safe a minute ago. Now I'm not feeling in this. Well, um, l listen to all 330 of my episodes and you'll be enlightened. I think that there was one piece, I'm, I think it was about, they set up the hot phone, that the hotline post this event. They did. They set up this uh, hotline. Now, 
you always have this image of Dr. Strangelove where there's this phone line where the two presidents can speak to each other. Do, do not shatter that because Dr. Strangelove is one of my favourite films. <laughs> I believe okay. that one was truthful. But anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But in fact, it was a uh, like a teleprinter service between the two. So for the younger listeners, you probably don't even know what a teleprinter is. It's a bit like a fax machine. So they would send written communications between each other, but it wasn't just pick up the phone and dial the president and, and get hold of him. It was a communication. It was a, a written communication system to try and reduce tension and reduce the chance of misunderstandings. I mean, there were loads of other things that happened in the Cuba Missile Crisis that, that where things went wrong. A U-2 plane got lost and ended up over the Soviet Union, um, and there were worries that the Soviets would think this would be, this was the start of a U.S. attack on them. There were loads of other incidents, and in fact, I'm going to be doing a, a whole episode dedicated to the Cuban Missile Crisis, so stay tuned for that. That sounds good. So the U-2 plane was supposed to be flying over Cuba? Yeah, U-2 planes were flying over Cuba and one did get shot down and yeah. the pilot killed. And one went missing instead of going over Cuba, went over the Soviet Union. Yeah, it did manage to find its way back. It was a navigational error. That's a big oh, navigational God. error. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I just want to rewind a bit back to the Berlin Wall. When I started listening to your podcast, I was automatically, as a former soldier, attracted to the sort of the, the soldiery side all your guests had military experience on both sides. But I actually found myself quite fascinated by a lot of the people you've had on who give accounts of daily life in a communist state. And I've been meaning to read Katja Hoyer's book, uh, Beyond the Wall. Yeah. Because I've heard her talk, and I've heard her being on a few podcasts, and it's like, the way she described it is life, Certainly in East Germany, it wasn't as grim as maybe in some of the other communist states. One thing that interested me was that there was more fridges owned in East Germany than there was in West Germany at one point, you know, for for consumer goods. But what's your take on life in a communist country like East Germany, even after the wall went up? Was it as grim as all the stuff we hear? Or was it tolerable, not that bad? I think what what you've got to remember is that our view of East Germany is very much framed by the Stasi. Now, if you kept your nose clean, kept your head down, did your job, just carried on with life, um, then the chances of you coming across the Stasi were probably relatively few and far between. But if you rocked the boat, protested, made an application to go to the West or something like that, then you would become under their scrutiny but east germany was like a lot of other countries you know people got married fell in love and worked for a company for their whole life much like the the west the big difference was you didn't have freedom of expression there and you couldn't travel to wherever you wanted to you could travel to places like hungary and the other warsaw pact countries and in fact hungary was a very popular destination particularly lake balaton um, because Hungary was probably one of the most relaxed of the communist countries, certainly in the latter part of the Cold War. Um, so it, it was different experiences for different people. And the more that I do these interviews and, and speak to uh, the the people, the more it, it becomes apparent, particularly their, their childhood, they talk about very fondly. Um, 
But then again, you know, at school they would have had lessons in Marxism-Leninism, certainly in their more, more senior years. Some of them undergone weapons training there as well. So it, it's, it was different experiences for different people. But there were certainly, you know, people in the population who just thought, this is it, the wall's up. I'm just going to have to get on with it. I'm just going to have to suck it up. And I think it, it's difficult to imagine living in a country like that. But I think what people forget is that people had no idea that the wall was going to come down in 1989. Mm. So therefore, it looked like your entire life was going to be lived in in East Germany and, and under that under that situation. Mm. So therefore you know, you would just try and keep the status quo. Because if you did rock the boat, there were lots of pressures that could be put on you. So, for example, if if you were protesting or you were arrested by the Stasi, the Stasi might say, look, we want you to inform on your friends. Now, I would like to think that I would take the moral high ground and say, I'm not going to do that. But then the Stasi would say to you, your son won't be going to university. Uh, your wife's going to lose that nice job. She's going to be, you know, doing some manual, hard-working job somewhere else. Are you sure you still don't want to tell us about what your friends are up to? And again, you know, not knowing that the wall's going to fall in 89, what what do you do there? Mm. Yeah. But I suppose if you were born in the, let's say, the 30s, and you grew up in a Nazi regime survived the Second World War, then moved into the communist regime, you probably, because you know nothing different, um, it's not like, you know... You yeah, you haven't known democracy really, have you? Yeah, so you, you're probably thinking, that, well, that's the way the world is as well. Well, but I think... Because you've always lived in the press societies. I think what's interesting, though, is the subtleties you pick up. I was in Estonia a few years ago, and we went into this hotel, and they do a tour. They have a listening room at the top of the hotel, and we went in there, and there's a, a guy that had been there in the communist era. He gave us a really good tour of this listening room. And, it's been, and it looks like they've just walked out of it the day the wall came down off whenever Estonia broke free from communist uh, Russia. But some of the little things he was saying, you know, that they were all bugged. There was honey traps for the businessmen. Mm. But he also said that friends of his who were there at that time were saying that Westerners even smelt different. You could smell a Westerner before you saw them. The soaps that they had, the washing powder for their clothes. And he said the West had a particular smell. And I find that very evocative that these people living under that regime. Yeah. Now, one of the things that comes across in the interviews I do with uh, former East German citizens is one of the highlights of their year or at any point was something called a West packet. So it would be a package sent by their Western relatives to them in East Germany. And as you've just described, Colin, the smell of that is really evocative. And one of my listeners pointed me to a purchase on Amazon, it was, where you could buy a spray that was the smell of the West. <laughs> Did you buy any? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, the smell is, you know, chocolate and soap yeah, yeah. and... Just nice you know, metal, all, all the, those sort of things. But the, the, these are things we take for granted. We never thought about. We never had to consider. Yeah, and, and like you're talking about, if you grew up in something you don't know any different. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't. You, no. you don't. But Ian did an episode with a, a British guy who 
was a schoolboy in Russia. I forget which part of Russia. Do you remember that episode? Uh, oh, yeah. He was quite deep in... His father was was working uh, for a chemical factory, I think, quite deep in the Soviet Union. It was miles from anywhere, this place. And just his stories of... A t- he was basically sent off to school, couldn't speak a word of Russian. You'd expect in that case he'd be severely bullied, but he was a, a, an interest piece. But he sort of really got himself involved in Soviet life, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think they were quite intrigued by him. Mm. Um, I, I asked him whether he was popu- popular with the girls, but he was apparently a bit too young for that sort of shenanigans. <laughs> Western decadence. <laughs> yeah. As we mentioned earlier, Ian, you host a hugely successful and award-winning Cold War Conversations podcast, which is available on most podcast platforms. But... As I've listened to quite a few of your episodes, I was always interested in what the main themes that you're taking away from all those people you've talked to, if there are any main themes. I think that the main themes that I that I take away is that for a lot of my guests, they've not told this story before. A question they often say to me is, who's going to be interested in listening to me talking about my school life in East Germany or Poland or or something like that. And I say to them, look, there's a constant, you know, fascination. There's a huge army of listeners that I've got. There's other listeners to other podcasts that are really interested in this level of detail and this level of experience. I think one of my most memorable interviews was with um, a guy who was a freedom fighter in the Hungarian uprising of 1956. And I just came across him by accident on uh, Twitter. His daughter had just tweeted a video of him saying, this is my dad having his last drink before lockdown. And 75 years ago, he was handed a machine gun and told to storm the radio station in Budapest. And I thought, my goodness, it's a Hungarian freedom fighter. So I interviewed him, lovely interview. Both him and his daughter were on the interview. The wine glasses were chinking in the background. It's a <laughs> lovely uh, conversation. But at the end of it, she said to me, you know what? He has said things to you that he's never told us. He's told us some of these stories, but he hasn't told us as much as you've got out of him. And sometimes it just helps to have somebody who is neutral in the conversation to bring out stuff that perhaps they hide away and and keep from their relatives. I mean, he gave quite a graphic description of um, a Hungarian policeman being shot next to him and the blood of his brains being all over um, his shirt because he'd been so close Mm. to this guy Um, and it's not something you'd probably want to share with you with your relatives but it was um, a a really moving conversation and and that's why I keep doing this because everybody has a story and every story is, is different and without you know, recording these interviews, much like the interviews you're doing with Falkland veterans and other and other veterans, they might get lost in the, in the mists of time. And these people deserve a voice. No, absolutely. And going back to that Cold War thing, some Kevin I have sat down and talked about an awful lot since the invasion of Ukraine is when we were training in our stay behind role, we fully expected that the Soviets would be charging through to the ports and getting to the ports quite quickly, you know, and the escalatory measures might happen quite quickly. But look at the state of the 
Russian army now in Ukraine, and I know it's not the Soviet army. I was just interested in your thoughts. Did we overrate the Soviet army during the Cold War? Well, it's obviously an impossible one to answer. I mean, with some of the Bricksmith guys that I've interviewed who were the uh, British military liaison mission who were allowed to operate in East Germany under a uh, post-war agreement with the Soviets to monitor what was going on there. They saw a, a mixed bag of of readiness, and they've said to me that they always thought that the East Germans were the more efficient and more professional of the armies rather than the, uh, the Soviet army. Um, and I recently did an interview with an East German tank commander, which was really... Um, illuminating he was a commander of a t72 and he said you know in the right hands the t72 could be deadly um but what what's happened in ukraine is a completely different situation you know some of these crews are perhaps not trained at uh, exposing themselves in situations that you you wouldn't expect them to um, so it's really difficult to make the same comparison, but obviously it is. Some of it is the same equipment upgraded, or the same types of of vehicles. Um, and with the interviews I'm doing with Allied servicemen who served certainly in the later '80s, there was a belief as the '80s moved on that with the improved technologies and weapons that NATO had, that they could have taken out even that numerical superiority that the Soviets had, we would have been able to take out a significant proportion of their AFVs. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest weapon they had in their arsenal was, was quantity, and we're even seeing that in Ukraine now, that they can replace kit quite quickly. But funnily enough, you mentioned there about these Germans being seen as more potent. I mean, that's something Kevin and I were taught in our various lessons on uh, Order of the Battle, that a lot of the Western group of forces, yeah, yeah, the East Germans, the Czechs, and the Hungarians were seen as more disciplined, organised, the better armed forces. It was, it was it was the satellite states, weren't it? Yeah, they seemed to be the better armies, not necessarily better equipped, but I, I, I think as well from the German side, I think it was just like the um, you mentioned earlier, the Western Germany, the the, the forces were built up from. Soldiers that fought in the Second World War, for the obviously on the German side, but the East German Army would have been exactly the same. It would have been soldiers that had gone through the Second World War, fighting obviously the Allies as well as the Soviets. So it would have been a, a, a real strong core foundation to build on, um, to professionalise an army very very quickly, and then you re-equip them and make them East German Army. But they would have had some very experienced commanders, especially in the early days. Yeah, I think that the thing that this East German tank commander mentioned, which I found interesting, is because their army was conscript, as was the Soviet, you had people who didn't want to be there. Yeah. And that created a friction and an inefficiency within units. And the Soviets was even more complicated by the mass of different nationalities that you had there. It was not always a given that everybody could speak Russian. You know, you've got the Uzbeks and um, all the different nationalities within the Soviet Union. It, you think of it as a sort of homogenous country, but it wasn't by any means. Yeah. So, you've over 300 episodes in. You've mentioned that you've captured some extraordinary stories. 
some of your stuff has been studied at universities and other places of education. So this fantastic archive, how are you going to preserve it for future generations? Um, I've been looking at a, a number of options. Um, the audio archive, I'm looking at archive.org to preserve it on there. Um, I've also been talking to the Imperial War Museum about preserving the the archive too and I've also got ideas in the pipeline to produce some books that include the um, written version of, of these interviews as well so that there's a almost a, a double insurance on preservation there. That's fantastic yeah it's well worth doing. Well that's it for this episode and a huge thank you to him for bringing his expertise to this fascinating story. So I look forward to the next episode when we'll take you through the history of the stay-behind concept. So that's units operating from World War II through to the Cold War. And obviously, that was the birth of the, of the 473 battery. So please tune in. Remember to keep supporting the Unconventional Soldier podcast. And Colin and I look forward to joining you again on the 7 Minutes to Midnight series. You can still find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. If you downloaded us from your iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere else where you get your podcast from. As always, I accept postcards, snail mail, you know, the odd email, the old-fashioned sort of stuff. And thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support to this series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.